What is it about Canada? Why study Canadian environmental history? If you've listened to the first 56 episodes of this podcast, I probably don't need to convince you that Canada's environmental history is worth exploring. But still, I think these questions are deserving of some examination, some self-reflection. Canadian environmental history may seem self-evident to Canadian historians. It's another subfield of Canadian history that contributes to a larger understanding of the history of the country. But why bother with Canada? Many topics in environmental history can be and have been studied in other national contexts, parks, wildlife, water, cities, forestry, mining, and more. And many environmental historians make a strong case for looking beyond national borders and instead look to bioregional, transnational boundaries for environmental history research. Migratory birds, for example, don't pay much attention to the borders of Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Their habitat crosses national borders. So why study Canada at all then? I'm Sean Karash. This is episode 57 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. To get a sense of why environmental historians study Canada, I spoke with three scholars who have studied Canadian environmental history from abroad, two from the United States and one from Finland. I wanted to know why they studied Canada, what challenges they faced doing so, and what insights they had about Canadian environmental history from an outsider's perspective. Uh, hi, Paula. Hello. How you doing? Oh, good. That's Paula Sari. Paula is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Helsinki. She's been studying the history of the national park idea. There are national parks all over the world, and Paula is interested in understanding this transnational phenomenon, its origins, and its development. This has led Paula to study Canada. Yes, so I have uh, done research mostly on Canadian national parks, including uh, two articles, and most recently focused on the history of Canadian national parks promotion. I'm currently doing research on the sort of transnational history of the American national park idea. So this includes a little bit of Canada as well. In 2015, Paula published an article in the journal Environment and History, which explored the representation of ideal park environments through Canadian Parks Branch promotional brochures. She looked at brochures from the 1930s to the 1970s to try to see how the Parks Branch attempted to represent nature in Canada's national parks. She found that beyond just publicizing the parks themselves, the promotional material constructed an ideal vision of national parks, one based on the branch's own conception of the purpose of national parks and the expectations of visitors. Over time, these representations changed, shifting from a focus on the usefulness and recreational potential of parks to a portrayal of Canadian national parks as wilderness museums. Paula says that this is part of a transnational phenomenon of parks, something she had hoped to examine more broadly beyond just North America. I thought I was actually interested in doing a kind of comparative history of kind of a Canadian and maybe Nordic, mostly Finnish, uh, Finnish um, ideas of national parks. But then the project became, became 
uh, more kind of American focused. So I decided it was becoming too uh, large, I guess. So I decided to focus on the history of this sort of American national park idea. As a graduate student based in Finland, studying Canadian environmental history from afar, I wondered what difficulties Paula faced in terms of accessing resources and conducting archival research. If I think about my uh, research on the um, Canadian National uh, Parks promotion, um, the challenges were mostly logistical. Um, it wasn't very easy at all because I was mostly based in uh, Finland. I did go to Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa a few mm-hmm. times. And it's a great archive to work at. But um, as I was doing the research mostly from outside of Canada, it wasn't very easy to get access to the materials. And I, I think it got more difficult somewhere around maybe something like four years ago. Because Library and Archives Canada used to have this great long distance loan program where you could get like microfilms sent pretty much anywhere, even to Helsinki. Mm-hmm. But then they changed it and started doing this, uh, digitizing the material and put it online if you requested it. Uh, this was okay as well, but that was kind of a slow process and you couldn't really know when the material was going to be um, available. So it, getting the material became more difficult. And also, at the same time, the International Canadian Studies funding was cut. So there weren't as many opportunities to get travel funding to go to Canada to do research. So I, even though I was very interested in, in doing this uh, uh, Canadian environmental history and continuing it, it, it simply wasn't feasible at the time. Canadian environmental historian and former director of the Robart Center for Canadian Studies at York University, Professor Colin Coates, wrote about this issue in 2015. In an article published on activehistory.ca, Coates noted that since the 1970s, the Canadian government had actually supported the principle that targeted funding through special programs could enhance the study of Canada at academic institutions abroad. This is more or less precisely the kind of work Paula was doing. Starting in 2012, the Canadian government began to eliminate these special programs, along with funding for the archival loan program Paula relied upon to access materials from Library and Archives Canada. Researching Canadian environmental history from afar simply became more difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, I I feel like it might have had uh, something to do with the Harper government's cutting funding from all kinds of things, because I think uh, Library and Archives Canada was a lot of things were, were cut. And um, also, I guess it's also um, the state of uh, academia in Finland, where Canadian history is not a big field. It's mm-hmm. kind of hardly exists. So there aren't really resources available here. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm well. All right. Can you hear me still? Yep, I can hear you just fine. Great. Sorry about the delay uh, in getting started here. Almost without fail, just as I start to do these things, I have various system failures and have to reboot everything. 
If Paula could find something of value in studying Canadian environmental history from Finland, I figured our colleagues to the south in the US might share even more insights into the study of Canadian environmental history from abroad. I'm Andrew Stuhl. I'm an assistant professor of environmental studies at Bucknell University. So I'm trained as an environmental historian and historian of science. And for the last about seven years, I've been interested in the history of the North American Arctic, particularly how science is an actor in and a window onto environmental and colonial histories. So some of my research takes place in the Canadian Arctic, particularly in the Inavaluate settlement region, which comprises what's commonly known as Yukon Territory, northern parts of that, and the northern parts of Northwest Territories. I finished a master's degree in environmental science. I'd heard so much about the Arctic as the canary in the coal mine of global climate change. And I just wanted to get up and live in the Arctic prior to doing a PhD in history on it. Mm. And I found an opportunity uh, that brought me to the Northwest Territories. So partly by chance, I could have, you know, there are many other nations that have Arctic territory. I could have ended up in Arctic Alaska or Norway, uh, you know, and you name another one. But I ended up in Inuvik, Northwest Territories, and from that town and from my short experience there, uh, started to see, as you mentioned, the Arctic as a place of intersection of cultures, of nations, of environmental flows, commodity flows, and of course, all of that over the expanse of, of human history. Andrew is the author of the recently published book, Unfreezing the Arctic, Science, Colonialism, and the Transformation of Inuit Lands. His interests have drawn him into the field of Canadian environmental history via the history of science and the history of colonialism. He spent a considerable amount of time traveling and researching in the North and working in Canadian archives as an environmental history researcher. He told me about what he has found challenging about studying Canada. I think I start to feel that you know, having traveled and spent time living in Canada when we talk about things just like how the government works, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's fair to say that my upbringing in the United States through primary school would be like others, uh, other United States citizens, in that we only get you know, small glimpses onto Canadian uh, civics and Canadian culture. So uh, just trying to understand how the Canadian government works is an ongoing process for me. And that presents a challenge in doing historical research because you, a researcher might not understand, you know, a representation. It might not understand um, how administrations come and go. It might not understand uh, when governments were formed or when provinces were formed or territories were formed or, or territories were transferred. Mm -hmm. All these kinds of things, um, which could be milestones in the Canadian citizen's mind or kind of well understood uh, in the Canadian historian's mind who lives in Canada, are things to learn about when you're looking in from the outside or not living in Canada. Living in Inuvik and doing research in what we call, quote unquote, the North, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of folks who are Canadians, lifelong Canadians, would be recognized as outsiders there, right? And right. Um, might also kind of come into that region with certain ideas in their heads that, that don't prepare them in any way, that are actually barriers because um, they don't match realities on the ground or locally produced histories of that place. So in a way, like, I guess being not Canadian um, didn't 
I didn't have those barriers. I had others. I didn't have those preconceptions of what, uh, quote unquote, the North was. I think I, I carried a different set of preconceptions of how Americans train their students to see the Arctic. Um, and those kind of do map on to the Canadian North, but not always. Right. And so knowing that like the Northwest Territories and Yukon branch, uh, the life of that and when does that go away and when does the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development come into being? When does that change to Indigenous North, North Indigenous Northern Affairs Canada? Right. So these kind of uh, nomenclatures of Canadian governance um, were certainly a barrier for me and what I return to and what I feel when I'm in the archives. Um, I don't know if you know, the regular Canadian historian who lives in Canada, if, if they come in with that kind of ability to search right away. I certainly did have some help from archivists uh, at the National Archives, the LAC, when I was there. Um, I will say uh, that when I was doing research on this project for the North, it was a time during uh, Canadian history, no longer in Canada now, but when there was some real pullback of the resources at the LAC. Um, so I didn't always have the time I wanted with specialists to help me search through some of the, the holdings. Um, but again, I don't know if that's something that a non, a Canadian wouldn't experience, right? I think that right. might've just been all archivists or all archival researchers. Like Paula, Andrew also made use of online and remote access resources during the course of his research. I mean, there is this constant ongoing digitization project across archives, governmental, uh, federal, territorial, um, non-governmental. And so that's certainly changed in the last seven to 10 years of my experience of looking into this. Mm-hmm. I think the greatest amount of material that has come online that's made it easy to research the North from a distance, especially the Arctic from a distance, are those histories produced by uh, residents themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the Innovaluate Cultural Resource Center, um, having funding from the Innovaluate Regional Corporation, in part from their land claim of 1984, they've been doing some really excellent work on visual histories, like coffee table kind of histories, but also scholarly work. Um, that's most of it's now online in timelines um, from like websites that they create and curate, and also on Facebook. Um, just you know, pictures that they found that they would like naming projects with, which I know the LAC kind of has going on too. Um, and so that stuff is great to see, where you have primary sources available. You have secondary sources or interpretations of primary sources available, uh, and you have perspectives of people who live in the North and not just, you know, historians who are visiting like me. Um, so that's been a lot really great to see. At the LAC, I've recently been working with uh, materials from cabinet, right? So cabinet conclusions and cabinet orders, and so there's been an ongoing process of transferring those from um, the Privy Council's office to the LAC and then those becoming available online and searchable. Hmm. Um, and so that's been really, really helpful to find that material. Um, my understanding of it is talking with archivists there that the Privy Council's office uh, during the last administration was not as uh, regular in transferring the materials based on kind of a dating system. And so that's an incomplete record, which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but I hope that they kind of catch up soon and that's available. Throughout these interviews, I've wanted to get a sense of where Canada fits in environmental history. Is the country an outlier? Is its history anomalous and idiosyncratic? Or does Canadian environmental history illustrate broader transnational or even global phenomena? 
if it's possible to say yes to both, you know, it's a both and. Right. I think it's I think it's useful to, you know, pursue that kind of answer, um, especially since I have been looking not just at Canada but also Canada and the United States across that international border of the Alaska ter- territory and then state and then Yukon territory. Mm-hmm. And this comes into kind of sharp relief during the 1970s when we have a global energy crisis that manifests itself in the Canadian and Alaskan Arctics through major interests in oil and natural gas resources. And the, one of the results of that in the, in the United States is the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System mm-hmm. uh, and an act of Congress which is the largest land claim or land settlement in U.S. history in the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act um, of 1971. In Canada, it manifests completely different, right, completely differently. Uh, we don't have the pipeline, the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline built. We have the Berger Inquiry, which is well-known inside of Canada, as placing a 10-year moratorium on that pipeline and never any pipeline across the Yukon North Slope. Uh, and from that you know, decision, in tandem with the federal government's recognition of Aboriginal rights, you have a commitment to negotiating land claim settlements and not just having an act of legislation to, land, to settle land claims. And so in this way, Canada is really illustrative and really helpful to parse out how nation states deal with the question of indigenous rights, energy development, and environmental protection, right? And how uh, timing matters, like there's a policy learning that happens within Canada on modern treaties. If the, if the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System had not gone through, what would have been the result of the Berger Inquiry? Um, how indigenous groups organize across uh, international boundaries and recognize their uh, shared commitment to indigenous rights in the face of these multinational tests of um, policies and federal governments. So certainly, I think Berger has been remembered inside Canada as you know, a national icon, uh, but that story is, is not really not restrained or limited to Canada. And it's really useful to think about how uh, that experience shapes um, what happens next door in Alaska in the 1980s when um, indigenous groups want him to come and review their claim or how the co-management structures that emerge from modern treaties inform uh, broader indigenous connections with scientists in through the Aarhus Convention of 1998 or in Australia and emergences of um, co-management and wildlife management considerations there. So um, I'm not really prepared to say that that's a moment for all regions of the world, uh, that we can you know, refract the experience of all planet Earth through the Berger Inquiry, but there's certain kind of hotspots that show up, you know, that map, I think, onto the Commonwealth, that map onto um, you know, first and third world or develop and developing world kind of dynamics that are well-known in post-colonial studies and colonial studies where the 1970s, we can see something really interesting in the 1970s through that moment. To better understand how environmental history scholars outside of Canada think about Canada, I had to speak with someone who had studied environmental history around the world, someone who could situate Canada as a case study in environmental history and compare it to other parts of the earth.
Canada was was very interesting for lots of reasons, um, and in some ways I wished I'd started earlier. That's Stephen Pine, Regents Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and past president of the American Society for Environmental History. He's best known as the world's leading scholar on the history of fire. He's written more than 30 books, most of which deal with some aspect of fire history. He's written fire history surveys of the United States, Australia, Europe, including Russia, and a global history of fire. Oh, and he also wrote The Fire History of Canada, a book called Awful Splendor. So why did I think of Canada, apart from being you know, fairly close, and mostly English-speaking, not entirely, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's part of a boreal zone, and I had, I had by this time, uh, also looked at uh, Russia and um, Sweden and Finland, so uh, I was interested in that that range of comparisons. Um, obviously, the North American comparison, uh, you don't have to go very far in the Canadian history from an American perspective to realize that there are some fundamental differences in how our countries are organized. Uh, then there's the whole Commonwealth thing. Uh, you know, uh, I can find institutions that I recognize, uh, documentation that I'm familiar uh, dealing with uh, because of that. So all those were important, and and finally, not least, fire. I mean, Canada has a lot of fuel, does a lot of burning, a lot of burning in its living landscapes, and uh, even more now in its uh, fossil uh, fuel landscapes. So you know, Canada, Canada is a big player. Stephen also found Canada a challenging place to study. His difficulty was one that many Canadian environmental historians struggle with today. How do you tell a national history across such a large, diverse country? The big challenge for me in in Canada was finding an organizing principle Mm. hold it together. And in a sense, repeatedly I found geography overcoming history. (laughs) I I don't wish to be misunderstood here, but a lot of places have a kind of organic history that may grow, it may widen, but it seems that there is a kind of informing theme. The principle sounds too providential, perhaps. But it, it's, it's easy to have the story unfold. And uh, with Canada, I couldn't find that. And I spent an enormous amount of effort, more than I think any other fire book I've, I've done, including Europe, which you know, sprawls over into Russia as well, mm-hmm. trying to find a way to organize it so that all of the individual parts could be represented in some kind of proportion, uh, and yet there could still be some kind of flow through it, that it was not just a bag of marbles, that, that it, did, it did integrate uh, historically, thematically, and so forth. And I wound up using a series of frames, of which the largest seemed to me a very Canadian thing, that is climate, Canadian obsession anyway. Mm-hmm. And useful because Canada, Canada is a tabula rasa. I mean, the ice, it's very easy to know where to start Canadian environmental history. Uh, you begin with the ice and the ice leaves and the story starts. And single fire comes in, so that also gave me an end point uh, the challenges of global warming. Interestingly enough, that is also a fire story because of our 
fossil fuel combustion. And so I could, I could end with the continuing retreat of the ice, in this case, into the Arctic. In Stevens' view of fire history, there was no doubt that Canada's role was essential to obtaining a global understanding of the history of humanity and fire. Canada is a huge player in the, the fire economy of the planet. I mean, it's a, it's a large country. Almost all of it, except uh, parts uh, on the extreme east and west, uh, where it's dominated by ocean uh, environments, uh, combusts. Uh, and you have large fossil fuels, often controversial kinds of fossil fuels, uh, that contribute. So Canada looms very large in all of this. Uh, you can't write a fire history of the Earth, leave it out. Um, and, you know, we do know, we do know things um, about it, which is very helpful. On the other hand, that said, uh, Canada being one of well, probably the big four firepowers in, in that sense, uh, I was surprised that Canada really doesn't, um, Canada punches below its weight class internationally. It, it's always present, uh, but it never leads. And it's quite content uh, to sort of let the U.S. frequently take the lead and, uh, you know, learn, learn from our stumblings and mistakes. <laughs> I mean, it's a very shrewd strategy, but Canada really has major fire research investments. Uh, it has lots of experience. It has very sophisticated fire uh, fighting and fire management technologies, particularly in aircraft, always a Canadian specialty in pumps and so forth. And you just don't see it. Uh, you don't see the institutional presence internationally the way you would expect for a country with that kind of investment. While Stephen saw Canada as critical to understanding fire history, he also saw Canada and Canadian environmental history as making important contributions to the broader field of environmental history. Some of the things that I think Canada is uh, is really shining on, I, I think, is the involvement of First Nations mm -hmm. in history. Australia is struggling to get the, the Aborigine, uh, Aboriginal history as a part of it. But that divide is so, such a dichotomy. You have Aborigine, then you have European. Uh, and it's very hard. So a big problem in writing about Australia fire, by the way, is getting outside there, redefining that whole thing. Canada's got lots. So uh, there's a certain pluralism built into the makeup that, that I think uh, is something that Canada will excel in. Um, you're really good in science and technology. And I think uh, the bonding of science and technological issues, I would say including uh, economics uh, into environmental history is something I, I think Canada can really excel in and I would look for. And I think just a reminder that a lot of environmental issues are not about policy so much. They're about politics. They're about the way a country and people organize themselves politically and what trade-offs that involves. And again, this, this seems very familiar to a Canadian. It may not seem so familiar to someone coming from a different political system. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean simply democracy versus other kinds. I mean, there are lots and lots of ways to organize a democracy. And Canada's is, uh, 
is an interesting one with, with trade-offs. There's some things you do really well and some things that I think are, are problematic. Uh, it's very difficult, it seems to me, in the Canadian situation to nationalize issues uh, because you don't have a, a federal presence institutionally that can take the lessons and sort of almost overnight make that a national um, concern. Whereas, and I saw this reflected in some international sessions where it's not clear who is going to represent Canada. Right. Uh, no, and then the provinces insist that they should be sending it, but then they don't want to put up the money to send somebody, and then they get, and that's one of the reasons why I think Canada doesn't have. It's sort of the question, who speaks for Europe? Uh, mm -hmm. So who speaks for fire in Canada? It, it's not it's not as clear. On the other hand, uh, you don't generalize things. Uh, you don't have this kind of nonsense we can have south of 49 where something goofy thing happens in California or Florida and suddenly everybody's affected by it. Mm -hmm. Because it's too easy in some ways to nationalize. Uh, and so, you know, we each suffer the vice of our, of our virtues. So the Canadian situation spares Canada from some of the, the nonsense that goes on south. Uh, but on the other hand, it means that in many contexts, certainly internationally, you're punching below your weight. In these ways, then, Stephen saw a value in studying Canada. Andrew also told me that he saw the study of Canada as making significant contributions to environmental history more generally. He left me with a few more ways of thinking about the place of Canada in environmental history. Um, in terms of Indigenous history as it intersects environmental history, colonial studies as it intersects environmental history, I think Canada is a worthwhile place to study. Um, and not just the content of that, but the praxis of that, the practice of that. How do historians, who probably don't uh, who might be non-Indigenous or mo majority non-Indigenous, how do they engage those materials and those conversations and what can they contribute to those ongoing conversations? Um, so I think that's just on my mind right now, but that seems to be a, a really worthwhile area for Canadian environmental history to be instructive for the practice of environmental history, capital E, capital H. Uh, another area I think um, that's in line with this and kind of in line with the previous comment is just mining histories, right? Mm. Uh, Canada, known for its mineral wealth, uh, its kind of geological history, and the, and the relationship between geology and the idea of the nation is well um, established in the scholarship. Uh, but we're now seeing, you know, Canadian companies acting globally as, as you know, mineral extraction agents. Uh, and they're in, also innovating in the policy arena to gain access to lands that have mineral wealth. And so the impact and benefit agreement, the IBA, right, that, that is the kind of major tool to get um, consent from landowners to allow corporations on to parcels of land with rare earth minerals or oil or natural gas. And that's a tool that is, has been really popularized and refined within Canada and by Canadian companies and in consultation with Canadian federal agencies. And so I think... Uh, that's an area I would love to see scholarship in. And I know there's some environmental historians, uh, Arne Keeling, John Sandlos, um, Emily Cameron, who are doing work in that area. Um, and I think their work wouldn't just speak to the Canadian story, but um, the history, political economy of, of mining around the world.
Nature's Past is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Paula Sari, Andrew Stuhl, Stephen Pine, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past.